Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. Welcome to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Scott Gardner, and I am joined by my good friend, Michael Bailey. Hey, Scott. How's it going tonight? Hey, I'm just dandy. How about you? I've decided that this is how I'm going to talk in all my podcasts from now on. It's going to be like Colt 45, 24-7. <laughs> Actually, that's a, that's a damn line. You know it. Um, I'm doing fine. How are you? I am peachy, peachy keen. But you know that because we've been conversing for hours before we started this anyway. But Well, if, if everything goes well, this will be our sixth new episode in a row. Oh, I love it. I love it. Just to give folks a, a peek behind the curtain, this is actually our, our first post-return uh, recording that we're doing. No, so. it's our second because we did the annual uh, about two weeks ago. Well, that's true, but I mean, you know, this this is the first one that we're recording post starting to the show actually, come back, yeah, yeah. Put, it, put, it, put him back up on the board, you know. So, I'm loving the feedback we're getting so far. It's really nice. But I, I really loved because you and I kept it completely hush hush that we were doing this. <laughs> we didn't promote it beforehand. We didn't say, "Hey, Tails is coming back on Friday." We just sort of kind of dumped it and walked away. Yep. And uh, the thing that made me laugh about that is that two days before that, 
somebody on the uh, message board. Was it Joe Anthrax? Or somebody was, you know, because you posted up a new Back to the Bins, and they're like, if there's a Tales on Friday, it'll be perfect. Yeah. Just wait. (laughs) It's a coming. Well, the thing is, too, that that I'm surprised, I'm amazed that nobody ever got in touch with me, PM'd me or whatever to, to give me grief because... You know, there had been that that post I put up on Facebook a while back that, you know, regrettably, folks, you know, Tails, it looks like it's dead. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to move on to other projects and things like that. And, you know, at the time, that's kind of where I thought things were. So I'm surprised that somebody didn't come back. You son of a bitch. You had me going because, no, it wasn't a joke at the time. I really thought, nope, that's pretty much it. But. Then your people got in touch with my people and contact. Well, you know. it, was, it, it was it was Dufo really that was just like no, uh, you know you guys have to do this. And then his lawyer showed up mm-hmm. and teleported us both to the room together, which was really <laughs> odd because I was at work, so I'm sitting there in my Office Depot uniform. You're in your monorail outfit. No one had a camera, <laughs> and uh, you know Dufo was sitting there with that like you know those sixteen lawyers. Who also kind of looked like thugs, uh, so I doubt that they were really lawyers. Uh, but I didn't really want to say anything at the time because you know I was afraid for our lives. And uh, you know he he laid it out pretty simple that uh, that we had no choice but to continue with the show because of the contract that I don't remember signing. <laughs> uh, but that's how Dufo works. He is our he is our boss. And do you ever notice that Dufo looks a lot like Chris in disguise? Yes, yes, I I have noticed that. Okay. I, uh, I, I don't want to ask because, you know, some, some things are worth not knowing uh, to me. But um, I think it's well, one of those, you know, you, you, you get him sugared up enough. It, it's it's one of those cornholio type of things. You know what I mean? <laughs> he needs tea before his bunk. <laughs> Something like that. I am cornholio. I need tea before my bunk. I cannot believe that uh, that the tales of the Justice Society of America, set in the 1940s, and somehow we've managed to pull Beavis and Butthead into this. It's awesome. Oh, it's all your fault. Uh, and, and two, speaking of the 1940s, um, I don't get a whole lot of chance, a whole lot of chance, wow, Hey, Mike, is there any other way you're going to mangle the English language this evening? Uh, I don't well, give me get, a minute. <laughs> I don't get much of a chance to sit down and do recreational reading anymore with the litany of podcasts that I'm involved with. You know, the free time is eaten up with uh, editing, and if I'm not editing, I'm recording. If I'm not recording, I'm reading books to do research for for recording and if i'm not doing that i'm either sleeping eating spending time with my wife or at work or surfing porn well yeah there's that but um (laughs) (sighs) i don't have to reformat my heart no i'm just kidding uh (laughs) but what i have found is thanks to graphic audio uh, which i think is at graphicaudio.net yes graphicaudio.net I can listen to dramatizations of DC novels, uh, several of which I've been kind of interested in reading over the years. There was a series put out, I I, I can't tell you when, that was uh, called Green Lantern Sleepers. And uh, I don't know how many 
total there were because that's the level of research done on this show to quote uh, Andrew over at uh, <laughs> It's Comics. But um, Graphic Audio has put out at least book one and book two of that series. And the second book is all about Alan Scott. I wonder if that's those books I was talking about a while back where I had picked one of them up at a flea market and it was a it was one of a or excuse me it was number 2 of a series and it had Alan it Scott on the cover. I bet you that's those. Um I'll read the graphic audio description. It says Green Lantern Sleepers Book 2. Book 2 of the Sleepers epic reveals the secret origin of Earth's first Green Lantern, Alan Squat, a squat. <laughs> Alan Scott and his mission to wield his power ring in the fight against evil. As World War II erupts, Scott must face a 17th century supervillain named Malvolio, an anti-Green Lantern whose pact with Hitler endangers not only the Allied forces, but per- put Earth's very existence at stake. Malvolio won't stop until the world is dominated or destroyed, and the emerald energy of Green Lantern is humanity's only hope for salvation. Now, the first Sleeper's book was mostly a Kyle Rayner story, though it featured Alan at the very beginning in a flashback sequence, and then he was kind of a secondary character, uh, not really even in his superhero identity. It was mostly about Kyle, and it had to do with the creation of a new Sinestro. And while it had some slow parts, it was a really good listen, because that's, you know, I can't say read, because I didn't read it. So I started this one two days ago i'm almost i'm just about halfway into it and this is a fantastic listen and i guess it would be a a fantastic read it was written by christopher j priest and michael on i think that's how you pronounce it and it, it the first part goes into the origin of this malvolio character and if you're like who's malvolio He was a character that was introduced by James Owsley, who is now Christopher J. Priest, back at the tail end of Action Comics Weekly. And he was a really interesting character, and I'm kind of glad that he brought him back here. But the, the heart of this story for me is the origin of Alan Scott. They, the two writers flesh it out into such detail that you really feel like you know this character. The only thing that I have kind of an issue with is it doesn't mention any other superheroes. It's like Green Lantern is the only hero in this world when it's it's pretty clear that this takes place in the same world as all the other novels, which means there is a Justice Society. So, but other than that, it's fantastic. Pick up the book, you know, the the five audio CDs over at Graphic Audio are only $13.99 right now uh, because it's a new release. Or you can download them as MP3s uh, for it um, looks like a one-time cost of 13 bucks. So I really, really think uh, that anybody interested in the Green, in, in Green Lantern or in the Earth 2 Golden Age DC Heroes really needs to pick this up because it's it's really great. I'm uh, I'm really happy and excited to be listening to it. I wonder if there's some way that we could uh, we could partner with them or something like that and, and you know 
promote this up as you know being JSA related. Is this something that you feel like maybe we should cover on the show at some time? Um, not really, because it pays. It doesn't really have much to do with the continuity. It would be good to discuss on Back to the Bins, though. Cool. I, I'd totally be down for that. As a matter of fact, uh, when, when you started talking about graphic audio, it suddenly put me in mind of. Uh, that other project we talked about a while back. The, oh, Trail uh, of Time. Yeah, Trail of Time. I, I haven't forgotten about that, dude. I, I would still like to do that. So, yeah, let's. I'll, uh, I'll get up to speed on that story again, and we can, uh, we can do that one. But uh, I looked while you were talking in my... Uh, I have a... How I've, I've decided to keep my database for my comics now is... Uh, uh, I actually have a cover scan of all of my comics so that it, it's kind of sort of at my fingertips. So I went in and looked at the cover scan of that book, and it is. It's, it is the one you're talking about. It's Green Lantern Sleepers, book two by uh, Christopher J. Priest and Michael Ahn. Um, I'll send you a, a copy of this, what this cover looks like, because you have to see the art on this. Oh, it's gorgeous. And uh, if I remember, when we uh, put this episode up, I'll try to remember to put this picture up in the show notes so that people can see what it looks like. But it's a gorgeous, gorgeous picture of uh, Alan Scott charging his ring in what looks like this uh, this alley between buildings in you know some 40s city somewhere. I don't know if this is Gotham or where it is, but it's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of art. I'm really excited that, uh, that they've done these books as audio dramas because... Uh, the only reason I haven't read this book was because it's book two, so I figured I had to read the first one to know what the hell was going on. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. Cool. I, I have really enjoyed those graphic audio ones that I've heard so far. I've listened to several of them now, and I, I've, I thought all of them were really quality ones, even to a point where... You know, they've done uh, dramatizations of stories I didn't even like, and I really still ended up enjoying them a lot. You know, like Infinite Crisis, ultimately I think that story's pretty poor, but their dramatization of it was excellent. I, I enjoy it more than the comic that inspired it. <laughs> um, from what I understand, they do cut out a few scenes in the book, which means I'm now going to have to track down the book to read, like, on a trip or something. But uh, still, no, the, the the great thing about these graphic audio dramatizations is the effort they put in for music and sound effects and the, the acting, the voice acting is top-notch. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike that Kingdom Come audio dramatization where some of the actors were god-awful, um, I think <laughs> is the best way to, uh, yeah, to, to, to refer to that. So, but yeah, it, like I said, since it's kind of germane to what we're talking about with uh, the, the World War II era heroes, um, really sucked me in. And uh, the more I listen to these, the more I think that maybe I should have checked out a few more of these books when they were first coming out instead of going, eh, maybe one day I'll get that because uh, sometimes there is no one more day. <laughs> oh, one can only dream. <laughs> so I guess that brings us to what we're here to talk about today, which is All-Star Squadron number 16. Uh, we're back into the official swing of things after taking, uh, you know, about five weeks to talk about the crisis on Earth Prime, and we did the annual last week. Or now seven months, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> well, to how they're listening to it. 
<laughs> I tease, I tease. You pull that. You pulled the curtain a little too bad, too far back, <laughs> Gardner. <laughs> oh God! Put some pants on. No, I am gonna let it all hang out. Um, this was released on September twenty third, nineteen eighty two. Has a credits of Roy Thomas writer, Adrian Gonzalez layout artist, Rick Hoberg, guest inker embellisher. I guess Jerry Ordway had the month off to finish up that annual. Carl Gafford colorist, John Costanza letterer, Len Wein editor. And the story title is The Magnetic Marauder. And the opening bit says, stop us if you've heard this one before. On a blustery day in January 1942, five colorfully garbed figures have just wound up a violent, if inconclusive, battle with a magnetically inclined menace called nuclear. See them race through the thronging avenues of wartime Manhattan. These valiant heroes who formed the fighting core of the already legendary... All-Star Squadron. The All-Stars rush to the JSA's meeting place, open the door, and find a beat-all-to-hell Wonder Woman asking for their help. She starts to fall, but Johnny Quick is Johnny on the spot and catches her before she can hit the ground. After Commander Steele comments on how beautiful she is, which is creepy because she's all bruised and banged up, leading me to wonder how rough Steele likes his trade, <laughs> Liberty Bell proves that for a doctor, she makes a fantastic mystery woman by suggesting that instead of calling a physician, they give Wonder Woman a glass of water. There is a brief conversation about what Bell meant by saying you as they open the door before Wonder Woman regains consciousness and declares they have to stop nuclear. Firebrand says, hey, we know that asshole. And the All-Stars recount their battle with the villain that happened two issues ago. Wonder Woman doesn't think they are taking nuclear's threat seriously enough and begins tossing All-Stars around before making a run for it. The group chases after her. Liberty Bell gets the bright idea to have Commander Steele just stand in front of Wonder Woman, and it turns out that Diana has a serious love affair with the red, white, and blue because it does cause her to stop. She tells them about her run-in her run-in with nuclear, which started when she, as Diana Prince, naval nurse... Sounds vaguely dirty. Uh, <laughs> Join Steve Trevor on a warship about to sail out of Norfolk. Does that mean Suddenly, she only operates on belly buttons? Using his magnetic powers to grab the warship and pull it on a collision course with the nearby cliffs. Diana quickly changes to Wonder Woman and manages to save the ship, but klutzy Steve Trevor falls overboard. Nuclear is quite pissed at Wonder Woman's interference and uses his magnetic powers to kidnap Steve. Wonder Woman tries to stop him, but Nuclear causes her bracelets to clang together, which apparently is enough for that hole if an Amazon's bracelets are chained together by a man she has rendered powerless thing to kick in, and Wonder Woman is thrown back down the cliff. Before losing consciousness, Wonder Woman is dimly aware of Nuclear escaping via submarine. Later, she comes to and, use, and uses her robot plane to fly to New York City, and here we are. As the All-Stars head Norfolk via the previously mentioned robot plane, Carter Hall plas- passes his solo flight, and we find that Shiera has joined the Nurse Corps. The All-Stars fly around the coast for a bit before sighting a mansion not far from where Wonder Woman fought nuclear. 
So all Scooby-Doo-like, the gang goes to investigate, and they meet Joy and Percy Playboy, real name Plazcheck. Uh, apparently, the press tagged Percy with the Playboy name, and out of spite, he legally changed it to that, which is kind of like cutting off your nose to spite your face. Um, I would never want the last name of Playboy unless my first name was Hugh Hefner. Uh, outside, Robot Man climbs down the cliff and eventually loses his grip and falls into a cave where he finds Nuclear Submarine and Steve Trevor. Unfortunately, Nuclear finds him and the battle begins. The All-Stars hear the fight from the mansion and head downstairs to the submarine, and before you know it, the shit has hit the fan and it is on. Nuclear uses Robot Man's arm to knock out both Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell before pulling the rug out, i.e. tearing the floor out, from under Firebrand. And I think it's very funny to peel the curtain back that I have discussed two comics this evening, and in both of them, a character uh, telepathically controls something metal to attack another character. (laughs) That's really weird. Joy asks who this guy is and what he has done with Percy. Nuclear reveals that Percy is dead and that he forced the the Percy to let him use his lab. He then reveals that the fl- under the floor is a raging fire. I'm going to say that again because I really want it to sink in. Under the metal floor, this guy has a pit of fire and I'm not talking like a little campground blaze no this is like four alarms flames everywhere how is the structural integrity of this ship still together anyways firebrand starts screaming that she is burning and begs for mercy before absorbing the flames and uses them to free her friends the all-stars start trashing the place Nuclear realizes he doesn't have enough power to take them all on, but doesn't have much time to come up with a backup plan because Steve Trevor shoots the bastard and Nuclear falls to his apparent death in the pit of flames. Wonder Woman uses her lasso to try and fish nuclear bodies out of Nuclear's body out of the fire, but comes up with nothing. Joy is upset because if Nuclear is dead, the truth about what happened to her brother died with him. Liberty Bell tries to make her feel better by saying that at least Nuclear will never again use Percy's inventions to menace America, and Joy takes some solace that her brother died a hero. (sighs) This this issue had extra pages, too, which (laughs) makes me a little sad, really. Maybe uh, the uh, maybe the the floor, the opening in the floor. Maybe it's like the the portal to hell or something. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe it's that like would be infinitely more entertaining than what was here. <laughs> maybe it's like what was that '80s movie with the old man that that his apartment he he guards the gateway to hell, the Sentinel or something like that. Maybe maybe that's Percy Percy Playboy's lab. He was actually. Had a poor, I don't know I, I'm I'm reaching here. By the way, I didn't I didn't mean to interrupt you when you were in your synopsis, but I just have to ponder that. Does naval nurse mean that she only operates on belly buttons? Well, to be completely honest, uh, 
yes, probably, and two, <laughs> somehow I had knocked the volume all the way down, so I never heard you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wondered, because you just kept plugging away. So <laughs> I do apologize for that. Um, I was wondering, you know, Scott's being awfully quiet during this, oh, I've turned the volume down, I suck. Um <laughs> Well, that'll be interesting to hear how that comes out in the recording post, whether whether you just keep plugging along or whether your your synopsis is interrupted with, with <laughs> my smart <laughs> 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 Um You got historical notes on this? Yes, yes, I do. I have the book open right now. I was looking at the synopsis, and, and, and it's like five sentences long, so maybe that's all I should have taken. But <laughs> we like to be a little more thorough, and I really wanted to harp on that, you know, thing of fire, because uh, it, just, it just bugged the crap out of me. The story takes place before Wonder Woman, who only debuted in comics in late 1941, was yet a member of the Justice Society. In this series, she joined the All-Star Squadron before she did the JSA. At one point, she says, for the first time since coming to Man's World, she needs the help of other costumed heroes. Either Roy Thomas or editor Len Wein added an impish footnote Note, obviously she hasn't read issues one to three, Len, at least. Ye editor assumes Len wrote it. Roy Thomas doesn't remember writing itself. Nuclear's alter ego in 1950's Wonder Woman number 43 was too corny. Percy Playboy. So Roy Thomas had his, had his sister explain that the real family name is Plazcheck, but a goth- gossip columnist called Percy that, and out of spite, he changed it legally to uh, Playboy. A bit convoluted, per- perhaps, but Roy gets a kick out of doing it. The name Plazcheck was taken from the name of Billy Plazcheck, a young Chicagoan he had met in 1964 who had been written up in newspapers for having given a thousand gold golden age comics by a family friend wow but yeah uh nuclear technically first appeared in wonder woman number 43 september october 1950 with art by hg peter uh, along with action such as the panel at the top left there which you can't see uh, there was a flashback to an earlier tale in which the amazon fought mag- the magnetic marauder this one however had never been published so that's kind of weird. Um, looks a lot. He, the costume looks a lot better here than in the fifties, just to tell you. <laughs> but uh, that's pretty much it for historical footnotes for this time, because unfortunately there are a lot of notes um, that have to do with images in the book, and that doesn't really uh, translate well to audio. <laughs> doesn't work in an audio medium. So are we going to get our bitching about the cover out of the way, you know, just so we can move on? Sure, go ahead. You start. <laughs> Not a fan of this cover. Yeah, me either. <laughs> it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty weak. Uh, I, I think the, the soul-saving grace is that it looks like if there were actually two panels to this cover, that in the very next one, Wonder Woman's girls are out. But other than that... <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a fan of this one. As a matter of fact, looking at this cover where they're all about to, to fall off the edge into the pit of fire reminds me an awful lot of the, uh, droid world story from star Wars number 47, where there was this similar type of deal with a, with a pit of fire that R2 and 3PO were going to fall into. And then like this big magnet saves them at the last minute or something like that. 
If I am correct, we are two issues away from Jerry Ordway taking over as penciler, and he starts doing the covers. That uh, that will be nice. Yeah, at I'm, which point you and I will have a lot more, a lot nicer things to say about the covers. Yeah, I'm I'm so totally ready for uh, for anybody but Joe Kuber on these covers. I, I they're just. I'm sorry. I know he's uh, considered a, a comics legend and all that, but I'm just not digging these. Not he's the he, he's not a superhero guy. I think is the real no. problem here. You know, he was known for his gritty war comics and things like Which that. Which I actually enjoy. Yeah, I, I think his style is fine for that sort of comic, but he's just not a superhero guy. You know, so it, it just doesn't work for me. Although I I get a real kick out of the cover copy here. You've got a. Uh, the magnetic marauder going feel my power and whenever i see that in comics i always hear it as uh there's a part in the uh, captain america and the avengers game where uh oh who does he fight i think it's ultron you know ultron uh yep. the, the the robot where he goes feel my power or no actually it's not ultron either it's uh it's the mandarin when you fight the mandarin he does that <laughs> so whenever I see that in comics now, um, I always have to say it. You know, I hear it that way in my head. I'm just wondering what the hell he's talking about when he goes, now you know why they call me nuclear. Yeah. No. No, Actually, not really. I'm really kind of confused why they call you nuclear, pal. Now because... I would know why they call you Magneto if that's what they <laughs> called you. But yeah, nuclear? No, it doesn't quite work, dude. <laughs> Oh wow! What to say? But I just don't have that many notes. I really don't. Um, this we've had like an issue or two before, like this, where nothing really of consequence happens, and it just seems to be kind of a placeholder issue. Right. Uh, I know that's probably not how it's intended because Roy Thomas obviously wanted to tell this story, but. This is one of, when I made the Scooby Doo reference, I, I was actually being kind of half assed serious because every once in a while, uh, like when they went to the uh, to Mexico early in the series, and it felt like the Scooby Doo gang going down to Mexico and getting involved in hijinks, and that's that's kind of what happens here. You know, they got their asses handed to them a couple of issues ago by this nuclear guy, and they opened the door like they did two issues ago and instead of the justice league standing there it's wonder woman mm-hmm. so so that's kind of interesting and it's kind of cool seeing wonder woman i don't think she is treated well artistically here oh uh, wow really because that's my biggest note on this issue is i love the way wonder woman is drawn through all, almost the entire issue, issue. okay there's, I think there's only one, uh, one or two panels where I thought she looked a little, a little weird, and it's mostly where she's making like that, like grr superhero face where she's like really concentrating, or, or there's one where she's scowling at, uh, at nuclear as she climbs a cliff that is very unflattering. But for the most part, I thought she looked just really hot throughout the, the prob- whole issue. The problem I have with her is that she is drawn in kind of an uh, to pay homage to her original artist. Right. And the other characters aren't drawn that way. So she looks kind of out of place. It's like seeing Roger Rabbit and Bob Hoskins together. It doesn't right. it, I mean it, it looks interesting, but it's it doesn't work for me personally. Though I actually like who framed Roger Rabbit. So uh, I I know what you're saying. I mean, there you know, uh Keith Giffen was fond of doing that with Superman. You know, whenever he would uh guest Draw Did Superman. JSA. Yeah. You're yeah. right. He would he yeah. would do the Schuster. 
yeah. style uh, Superman. So, yeah, you got a point there. He did uh, that in a, in an issue of uh, DC Comics Presents, where it was uh, it was either Superman and the Legion or Superman and Ambush Bug, but they went to the future to the Legion's time, and through that entire story, it looks like the Schuster Superman, and it was very jarring. Although the issue and the story were very very good. Um, but yeah, and I think that's a valid criticism here. But again, I, I like it. I think she looks really, really good in in most of the panels. Um, she's just she's drawn very, very attractive, very feminine, and I uh, I dig it. Now, uh, I did have a couple serious beefs with this issue, though. Okay. All right, page three. Uh-huh. Panel six, and this carries over to a footnote on page four. All right, well, first, uh, pa- page three, panel six, um, you've got this, uh, actually, it starts in the fifth panel, where um, Steel's, Commander Steele says to Liberty Bell, he says, uh, why did you cry out who when we walked in? And she says, funny you should ask. For just an instant there... I thought I saw several other costume types in the room instead of Wonder Woman. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. All right. And then you flip over to page four and there's this whole thing where they're recapping the fight with nuclear from a couple of, uh, of issues before. And there's a footnote from Len Wein, the editor that says, despite, Liberty Bell's feelings of, and how the hell do you pronounce this word? Presque vu? Yeah, I guess so. Our colorful quintet have forgotten. They just completed a cataclysmic battle with Perdegaton that spanned three worlds, four decades, and five DC issues. No, goddammit, they didn't forget. It never happened. It's a time travel thing. It all got wiped out of existence, and nobody's mind got wiped. It just simply never happened. That's why it's impossible for Liberty Bell to have thought she saw other people or at the end of that story, you know, Power Girl had this weird feeling that they just avoided some cosmic. Oh, I hate that shit. It drives me nuts. I know it's a contrivance of the story to to do a little wink to the reader that, you know, gee, remember this stuff that they don't remember? Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I was there. I read it. But you don't need to throw that stuff into it because then it just... For me personally, that kind of shit takes me right out of the story. I really don't like that sort of thing. I, I had a I had a beef with page three too that I kind of mentioned in my uh, synopsis. Uh, <laughs> Firebrand says, "I doubt if any bones are broken, but maybe we should call a doctor. <laughs> Let's start small, shall we? Say with a glass of water." Liberty Bell says, "And work our way up from there." Um, no. <laughs> She's really enjoying that glass of water right up until she internally bleeds to death. <laughs> I just... <laughs> you know, if she would have said something like, and I hate to play armchair writer, but, you know, it's a podcast, it's commentary, go with it. Um, if she would have said something like, well, no, she, we, we don't know how her powers work. She may look worse than she is. Let's You know, let's just wait. <laughs> Scott, let me let me tell you something. If if you walked into your house and I was sitting there looking like you know sixteen pounds of crap stuffed into an eight pound bag, uh, and I'm like, oh, I need your help, 
after wondering why the hell is Mike in my house, I want you to call the doctor. Okay? <laughs> Please. Have somebody with, you know, <laughs> medical training look me over. I know we don't have time for that in the story, but come on. Really? You're getting a glass of water and you're going to like it. <laughs> my, my, my appendix burst. Glass of water. <laughs> I can't feel my legs. No water for you because you this can't water feel will, when you have to pee. <laughs> this water will hook you right up. <laughs> so, yeah, kind of problem. Oh, let's see here. What else we got? Page five and six. All right. While artistically it's dynamic and it looks beautiful. What the hell was the purpose of Wonder Woman suddenly flipping out and fighting everybody other than this was the the early stages of Marvelitis over at DC? I, I don't I really yeah, that, didn't. that's what I got out of it that this was, you know, your typical Marvel team up where they have to fight because they met in a warehouse and they don't know who's who. Right. Or this is my favorite in quotes type of superhero fight. Because it doesn't make a lick of sense. I came here for your help, so obviously you're not here to help me, so I'm going to leave. Well, come back here. No, no. And, and then they start fighting. Right. It's just like, no, don't, don't we have a greater threat to deal with? Isn't that the kind of the whole point of a bunch of heroes teaming up to deal with a threat, you know, no single hero can take care of? Right. Except your Superman. <laughs> Well, I don't have another note all the way until page 22. Have you got anything? Uh... I like the mention of the annual number one already happening because the way we covered it, it already happened. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I, 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 you and I had talked about either doing the annual before or after um, the Crisis on Earth Prime. And we, we decided after because, you know, th- that's like kind of a weird story to go to and then do like this really epic five-parter. But it was kind of fortunate that we chose to do it before this issue because then Wonder Woman's already had that adventure with where they go beat up the guy in his underwear. Um, Etta Candy makes an appearance on page seven. Yeah. The only time I ever liked this character was when George Perez was uh, writing the book. Amen. Um, Greg Rucka did some nice things with her, too, because he continued her being a military woman. But uh, I freaking hate Etta Candy. She is the lousiest sidekick in Golden Age history. She's lousier than Pinky. Um, uh, Mr. Scarlet and Pinky. Uh, And I really, it's like the only thing about Generations 2 that I don't like is that John Byrne had her doing that whole woot woot shit that I despise. And really, it's kind of, she's just sitting there hanging out with the holiday college girls. And, oh, God, that whole thing just pisses me off. (laughs) Um, Really cool to see Diana Prince. Um, I may not. I may be more of a fan of the Perez take on Wonder Woman, but when when the whole secret identity thing is done properly, plus this reminds me of the TV show. Um, yes, which makes me happy as well because I got to tell you, I, I know they had to change it in the second season because the World War II thing wasn't working out. I loved the World War II episodes of the Wonder Woman television series. Um, 
it just it just made more sense to me to have her in that era. It worked for me for some reason. Uh, though in the in the in the episodes that took place in the present, you had that cool swimming outfit she would occasionally put on. Yeah, that full body outfit, which was just as hot as anything. Because Linda, I'm going to stop now. <laughs> Linda Carter's hot. Uh, I do like that Roy Thomas worked in her bracelets getting bound together. So she's uh, rendered powerless, which is how she got her ass kicked so heavily. Uh, so that was kind of cool. Robot man is consistently drawn. Awesome. In this issue from, mm-hmm. uh, from start to finish. I, I love the detail they put into his con- his look, especially that creepy smile he has, no matter what's going on. Yeah. Nice uh, use of shading and zip mm-hmm. tone there. I, I, I do. I like that too. Um, uh, I know that Roy Thomas likes Hawkman, but did we really need the four panels of, or the five panels of him in this issue? Did it have any bearing on what was going on with the story? If it gets him the hell out of the way, I, I'll <laughs> give up four four panels. <laughs> the um, I like the fact that we don't know if Percy Playboy, even though he is, but it's never said in this issue that he is nuclear, right? I kind of like that. You know, what I would have, again, I, I hate to play armchair writer, I would have loved if it turned out to have been his sister. Even <laughs> though that kind of thing has been done in the past, but I always like it when they, the bait and switch, if done right, works well for me. That's uh, an interesting idea. So, but uh, I don't know where your next note picks up. So, uh, uh, let's see stop. here. Page 22. Okay, very good then. <laughs> Let's see here. Is oh, it, it was a, it was about what's that? Is it the Uncle Remus thing? Yeah, yeah. This is a, a reference that I, I wonder how many kids reading this, you know, in 1983 would have actually gotten this reference, or even people today. But yeah, there's a, a, a reference here to uh, Firebrand makes a, a reference to Uncle Remus. I don't know that I would have gotten this when I read it originally, but what she's talking about is um, Firebrand, or excuse me, uh, Nuclear is going to dump her into this big mystery fire pit. You know, I cannot believe that I read this entire story and never batted an eye about the fire pit thing. When you pointed it out, you're, you're completely, that's completely ridiculous. I mean, he does, he's got a metal floor. You can see the rivets when he's ripping it apart, that it's a completely metal floor. So everybody should be getting a nasty hot foot at the very (laughs) least. At the very least of the, of, uh, I mean, if, if the, if it looks hot, so why isn't it melting and becoming structurally unsound? I mean, seriously. I, man, I don't know. That's one of those things I guess you're just not supposed to think about it very much. But she uh, she pulls a Br'er Rabbit here, and she's doing you know doing the whole, you know, please, Br'er Fox, don't throw me in the briar patch type of thing, you know, where she's telling Nuclear not to throw her into the fire, she's afraid, and all this. And he's doing the whole, <laughs> oh, so that's your weakness type of thing. Well, it's all a, a ruse so that she can get closer to the fire and then suck it all up and absorb it and use it against him. And that's when she makes her reference to Uncle Remus. What she's talking about is, you know, the story of, of Br'er Rabbit, because in the end of that story, he finally gets caught by Br'er Fox. And the way he gets out of it, rather than getting skinned and eaten, is he tricks Br'er Fox into thinking that, you know, the thing he fears most is being thrown into the, the briar patch. So, of course, Br'er Fox throws him into the 
the Briar Patch. You know, Br'er Rabbit was raised in the Briar Patch, so knows his way around, so he doesn't get hurt by any of that. It's it's a bit of a stretch, but I see what she was going for. It's it's a it's a nice little reference, I guess. You know, it, it, it continuously pisses me off because the film wouldn't come out for several years after the story is set. That's true. Uh, but Song of the South, which is a pretty non-offensive movie as I remember seeing it, but it has one of the most quintessential Disney songs ever in it. Mm-hmm. And yet, for politically correct reasons, they will not release it legitimately on DVD or Blu-ray in the States. You know, that's a damn shame. It, it is. It really is because I th- I think it's a fine film myself. Um, but of course, you know that's coming from me. You know, a middle aged white guy. But what's really funny is that uh, a, a very good friend of mine at work, um, and we were talking not long ago about such things, and he never realized that Splash Mountain at Walt Disney World was actually based on that movie. Had no I didn't idea. realize it either. And uh, so we were talking about this and I was just I was frankly amazed that, you know, a a cast member would have no idea of this movie. So he was asking me to tell him about it. And I was explaining, he was like, wow, that sounds really I'm going to have to seek that out. So, you know, a a few nights later, he comes up and he's like, man, I watched that movie and I, I really enjoyed it and I really loved it. And he goes, you know, what's the problem? Why don't they release it? And I told him, you know, why they don't release it. He couldn't believe it. This fella is a black guy. And, I mean, he thought it was fine. He didn't see what the big hubbub was about it and actually needed me to explain it to him. So I think that shoots a nice big hole in the theory that, you know, it's some big racial to-do and, and, and too disgraceful and, for, the, you know, for release. And let me make this clear. I am not insulting Disney at all. I'm right, not right. Yeah, me either, people. yeah. Well, you can't, but... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, and I'm not and and uh, main reason I'm saying that is that I don't want you to get get you in trouble. But it just seems no. like one of the classic films in their library. No, I mean, like, like I said, the one of the quintessential Disney songs to me, Zippity Doodah. I mean, seriously, that to me is the the epitome of Disney. Absolutely. Well, that song, if I'm not mistaken, won the Academy Award that year for Best Song, and the the actor that played Uncle Remus, again, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he won the some form of Academy Award for that role. It wasn't like Best Actor or anything like that. I think it was a special award because he was a black man, you know, yeah. in the '40s at that time. So it, it was some sort of I'm trying to think of what the word would be, some sort of accommodation yeah. that they made for him. You know, but still, I mean, come on, an Academy Award's an Academy Award. I think that's something to be very proud of. And I understand why, you know, I I understand the official reasons why. But I, again, as a white guy, am venturing a guess that they're afraid of something that probably wouldn't really happen. I I think that, you know, a a good example was uh, there was a a nice video video. excuse me, a DVD release, rather, a couple of years ago. It was one of the very first sets of a, of a beautiful series called Walt Disney Treasures. And it, it they were nice compilations of just some rare Disney material. And one of them was a collection of Silly Symphonies. And there was one of them, it was, uh, I don't know if it was the very first Three Little Pigs cartoon or one of the sequels. But in one of the Three Little Pigs cartoons... The wolf comes to the door disguised as a Jewish peddler at a time when 
these people were portrayed in cartoons and things as very, you know, stereotypical and, and, and offensive by today's standards, you know, looking back at such things. And before the cartoon is shown on the DVD, Leonard Malton comes out and explains the historical context and how it all fits and that sort of thing. So he basically briefs you on it before you see it so that you understand it in the context that is being shown, you know, despite, you know, how offensive or whatever it may be by today's standards. I think something very similar to that could be done with Song of the South, you know. Especially if it's Leonard Moulton. I mean, oh, yeah. if he speaks about film, it's pretty much gospel. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, what else have you got on this one? Um, I do kind of like the end where, where Firebrand frees everybody and, and a one-armed robot man is just getting into the thick of things. <laughs> um, it just kind of ends. Yeah. It, it, it's like they got to the end of the story and really didn't know where to go from there. So it's, I think I, I, I hate to say this, but it feels the story feels kind of inconsequential. It, it is largely, I enjoy it as just a fun superhero romp, but yeah, yeah. I, I don't think this ever plays into anything in the rest of the series. So yeah, largely it's uh a quote-unquote unimportant story. But art-wise, it was a lot of fun. <clears throat> Excuse me, a lot of fun. The, the story was wonky, so it, it's a bit of an oddball, but it's it wasn't a bad issue. Um, one note that I did miss, only because I, I didn't, I failed to make a page number reference of it here, so I'm not sure exactly where in the issue it occurs. But at some point during the story, there's an interaction between Diana Prince and Steve Trevor where she says something to the effect of, you know, maybe one day I can come work for you in the intelligence department or something like that. And it was, that, that was a bit groan worthy to me only because that was a, a reference to what the earth one wonder woman was up to at the time, you know, working in. And I think it's what the earth two woman wonder woman did as well. Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I believe in one of those all-star issues we covered 16 years ago, it feels like, right. <laughs> um, I believe she was working in 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 intelligence when she shows right. up. Yeah. So it's one of those. Oh, I know the future, so I can add a little thing here, like like uh, Joshua Bertoni is always bringing up in Chapter One. John right. Byrne has Spider Man swinging by the bridge and thinking, "I always get a bad feeling when I swing by this bridge," and that's the bridge where Gwen Stacy died. So right. I'm not a big fan of that anymore. Yeah, well, especially it's when it's... Been, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, basically because it's been done to death. Right. Well, also, when it's something that you're foreshadowing that... I, I, I love foreshadowing if it's for, like, a storyline that's a few issues away or, you know, the next event or something like that. But when you're foreshadowing something that's 30, 40 years down the road, you know, continuity-wise, it's a bit of a stretch. You know what I mean? I think the main thing about this issue that I don't like is that one of the things about All-Star Squadron that I love is when 
Roy focuses on Johnny Quick or Liberty Bell or Firebrand or Robot Man or Commander Steel, because those are the characters we don't get to see everywhere else, quote-unquote. Right. Uh, it's why I'm looking forward to rereading next issue and then getting into the storyline coming up, which culminates in the birth of a super team. Because all of that has to do with the character, even though there's like, you know, like there's a Batman and Robin issue coming up, I think, that I that I like quite a bit. But even though those guest stars are there, it always seems more to do with characters Roy is creating for this series that keep you coming back month after month. And here, they team up with Wonder Woman, which is cool, but we just saw Wonder Woman team up with a couple of all-stars in the annual. Right. So it's kind of weird to get her again. It doesn't feel as exciting or new or special because we've already seen it. Right. So, um, but I'm going to stop complaining because I don't want to <laughs> seem like I'm, I'm coming down on this issue because it's not the worst issue of the series. That'll be that, that uh, when we have to cover those JSA solo stories after the crisis. <laughs> <sighs> so we do have ads. Yeah, I was just noticing that. Not, what, what jumped out at you? Because there really was only one that sort of jumped out at me. Uh, I like the Lego ad. There's a Bubble Yum, Super Yum. The Saturday morning, there's a couple here. One of uh, the new Pac-Man show, The Little Rascals, Richie Rich. And I don't know about you, but I hated the Richie Rich cartoon. I don't remember any of these shows. Mork and Mindy and Laverne and Shirley, Scro- Scooby and Scrappy, and the Puppies New Adventures. Uh, the Pac-Man animated series, I never watched Saturday mornings. I would watch it back when the USA Network had its Cartoon Express from like 4 to 6 at night. Uh, some, it may have gone later, but that's where I like got to see a bunch of old Hanna-Barbera cartoons for the first time. Um, there's a Lifesavers maze, which... Thankfully, no one filled in in the issue I have. <laughs> the Starcade, the big thing in the middle, where we have the new Pandemonium animated series, Meatballs and Spaghetti. Apparently, a dog is the drummer. Uh, Gilligan's Planet, which sounds like an awful idea. That actually was a good show. This was the uh, on this page, you know, besides the obvious, you know, Bugs Bunny and and Sylvester and Tweety shows. That was the only one I remembered. I don't remember. Pandemonium or Meatballs and Spaghetti, but Gilligan's Planet I actually used to watch, and yeah, it's a pretty silly concept, but it actually wasn't a bad show. New from Renko Toys, the battle action continues with Sergeant Rock playsets. <laughs> Forward Recon Post playset, River Commando Patrol playset, Action Machine Gun Nest playset, available at your favorite department or toy store, i.e. Kmart. Because I didn't see Sergeant Rock toys anywhere else. Yeah, that was the only place I ever saw them. The problem with toys like this is who is he fighting? They didn't make any bad guys. They didn't make like, you know, you know, free with three German soldiers or something, you know? I mean, there's nobody for him to fight. Well, that's why Cobra exists, by the way. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, was it Hasbro? I think Hasbro at the time had G.I. Joe. Uh, or maybe they have it now, and I, I I don't remember. Anyways, whatever toy company presented to Marvel the concept of GI Joe, they're like, well, who's the bad guy? Uh, what bad guy? Well, what are we gonna have him doing maneuvers? I mean, we we need a right. villain, <laughs> and they start spitballing. And I think it was Archie Goodwin who said, yeah, we'll call it Cobra. So, 
It's really weird looking at those like names that have stuck through time. It's like Denny O'Neill apparently came up with the name Megatron. Huh. I wonder Just if he gets any kind of cut from meetings. the movies. Uh, he might, because of the way Marvel worked at the time, but I don't know. I don't know how it works. I know that DC has been very good about giving... Uh, apparently, Denny O'Neill helped uh, with ba- Batman Begins. Like, they had Mr. Zaz in there, name-checked. So, Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle got a check. That's pretty cool. So... It's like Jerry Conway and Killer Croc. Apparently, Killer Croc is his most financially lucrative character he's ever created in terms of residuals. <laughs> Defend the Galaxy, Star Frontiers. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> These are really... I miss the hostess I ads. I do, too. Damn it. <laughs> Damn, it's the hostess ads. There's just not anything even <laughs> remotely... We can't reenact. What are we going to reenact? The triple offer ad with the uh, free burning key car racing rig with tough wheels. <laughs> Milk Duds, Clark Zagnut with a Walkman that had an AM FM uh, radio on it. <laughs> Radical. Yeah. And then on the back cover, the out of this world superhero character, Time Sticks. Time capsules and watches. I like the Garcia Lopez art. I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> hey, nice Garcia Lopez art. Yep. To move with life. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Um, guess elsewhere in the DC multiverse. Sweet. Very good month for that, by the way. Got a lot of good stuff in here. I love that Blackhawk cover. Yeah, that is good. Who's the artist on that? Oh, Dave Cockrum. Ooh. That is a good one. I'm down with that. I like Dave Cockrum's artwork. Uh, Unfortunately, the interior art is... Interior art is done by Dan Spiegel. (laughs) So, um... First appearance of Plastique in Fury of Firestorm number 7. Yeah. Uh, The Doom Patrol team up with Superman in DC Comics Presents number 52. The Wonder Woman cover is creepy as hell. Yeah, I think that's a Frank Miller, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Frank Miller on that one. It's just her skeleton being held by chains. (laughs) I like that, though. I like uh, this issue of Batman. Oh, the cover's by Keith Giffen. I never realized that before. It was a Hugo Strange story, and I was always a sucker for uh, for Hugo Strange. I always thought he was one of the cooler... uh, Underrated bat villains. Bat villains, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Masters of the Universe number one. <laughs> to Tame the Gods. Nah. <laughs> I've never read this, uh, and I'm a big He-Man fan, too. So uh, That Teen Titans issue number 26 has a great Perez cover, and I like that story, too, where they deal with teen runaways. Yeah. Um. Just a really solid cover. Saga of the Swamp Thing, number eight. One of the worst issues of the series up to that <laughs> point, and, and for quite a while after. Yeah, that was a oh, terrible, terrible story on that one. Ah, Colonel Future on the cover of Superman, number 78. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know that I've ever read this issue of Brave and the Bold. I have it, and I like the apparel cover on it, but I don't know that I've actually read that one yet, because I never much cared for the Nemesis. 
Speaking of things that I've never cared for that will get me the stink eye in certain places, I was never a fan of Camelot 3000, and the first issue came out with this cover date. I just never liked the series. I don't know why. It just never appealed to me. Yeah, I've I've never read it. I'm not much of a... It's Brian Boland, right, on the Mm -hmm. art? Yeah, I'm not much of a Boland fan, and... Man, I'm telling you, if there's if there's one way you want to keep me away from a story, make it about King Arthur and the friggin' Knights of the Round Table. And, really? Yeah, it's like it's like kryptonite, dude. It's like no, nope, no interest. Thank you. Yeah, just um, never, never dug that whole that whole thing. I don't like the cover all that much, but Supergirl: The Daring New Adventures of Supergirl came out this month. Have a really nice Keith Pollard Green Lantern cover where he's fighting Evil Star. Yeah, um, I do like that. God, I love Hal Jordan's outfit. I'm a big fan of Kyle, but there's something about very classic about his costume. Um, <laughs> this made me laugh. I don't know where, I think it was Back to the Bins where you brought up I Vampire, and I yeah. thought CW should uh, do a series, but it would end up being all Twilighty. Well, it turns out that I would have been right, considering that I Vampire series that has been announced from DC that has the Twilight esque art on it, and it looks. Oh, no. It's the same concept, just looking very teenage modern. So uh, is it him? Is it Bennett or whatever? It's is Andrew name? Bennett. Oh, okay. But it's a young teenage-looking Andrew Bennett. Oh God! Yeah, that was the kind of disappointing thing where I thought this would be a really good movie. Uh, I actually figured out who should play him too. Who's that? Did you ever watch the nanny? Not if I could help it. Okay, the, the guy who was the 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 love interest and the boss in the nanny. Eventually, his hair started going gray, and he kind of looks like Andrew Bennett from the comics. Isn't he the same guy that played Moriarty on Next Generation a couple of times? Or am I thinking? I'm, I might be thinking of another. He's English, though, right? Yes, he is English. Yeah, so. I'll have to look that up at some point because yeah, I, I think that might be the guy. But classic Legion of Superheroes. Yes. Cover. Uh, 294, where everyone's worshipping Darkseid. Yep, from the Great Darkness Saga. One of these days I need to reread that. It's been a long time. You've never read it? Yeah, and I finally found this issue in a dollar bin. We had to cover that, like I'm back to the bins or something sometime, because I'm very curious for your reaction to it, and I'd be very curious for my own present-day reaction to it. It's been a long time since (laughs) I read it, but I remember that being... That's one of those classic stories. I don't think of it very often, but whenever you know people talk about classic stories or you know really thrilling runs or something like that, and that one comes up, that's one of those ones I always do agree with. Where you know me, I, a lot of times I I buck trends like that, but that one I I used to always agree with that that's a great story. But contrarian, yeah. um, they recently put it out in a slightly oversized hardcover too. Yeah, I heard about with a, that. With a nice, nice version of this cover, uh, a painted version, which I kind of like. Uh, I, st- I have to at some point sit down and read my run of Night Force. Uh, uh, this cover would not make me want to pick up the series if this was my first issue. Uh, I like the Sergeant Rock cover only because of the logo, Sergeant Rock, being made kind of in, in, in the rock in the background. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Uh, this Action Comics cover oh, looks... It's gorgeous. Jackhammer? Yeah. yeah. That's, 
It's a oh, it's a Rich Buckler cover. Rich Buckler, and I predict that Jackhammer's about to get his ass jackhammered by Superman because Superman looks pissed off, and his eyes aren't red. So uh, <laughs> you can do it, DC. Um, Jonah Hex cover looks good. I like that a lot. Yeah, he's uh, he's getting ambushed. Somebody's about to shoot him in the back. The dirty rotten skunk. I wouldn't do. I wouldn't. Adv- I wouldn't advise that. <laughs> I really, have, oh, I'm sorry. A really nice Jim Aparo detective cover where he's drawing Green Lantern. I mean Green Arrow. I was just going to comment on that. That I think there's something very, very wrong about Batman not being on the cover of Detective Comics and lame ass Green Arrow being there. It is a beautiful Aparo cover. I just. I like Green Arrow. Oh. Really. I don't like no. the backup. Detective Comics Green Arrow series that was written by Joey Cavalieri where he was super liberal. And it's not that I mind a character having a liberal outlook, but when you have the character continuously calling himself a liberal, right. that's, that's a little much. I mean, if you if you honestly have like a good discourse with the characters, uh, you know, where, where somebody presents like, you know, the more conservative side, somebody presents the more liberal side and the writer doesn't seem to pick a side and just lets the reader kind of come up with their own decision. I'm all for that. But the biggest problem I have with the classic O'Neill Adams, green arrow, green lantern series is that most of it was green arrow spouting off a bunch of, uh, you know, BS philosophy, uh, that that had some merit to it, but just the heavy-handed way he did it just annoyed me. And then Green Lantern would just sit there and go, oh, you're right. That's why when it was revealed that Speedy was a freaking heroin addict, I was like, yeah, knock you off your fucking perch now, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I always have a problem with, with characters that are very one-dimensional or, or at least seemingly one-dimensional that, you know, they, they give them some catch or some something that's supposed to be a hook but all it is is it's the one facet of their personality that seems to come up in every story whether it's you know i'm a liberal or i'm gay or i'm blind or you know i'm a moron or whatever yeah those kind of characters and those kind of stories that just continuously (laughs) says i'm a moron (laughs) wolverine and his damn you know i'm the best there is at what i do and what i do it's like yeah i know dude you say this every issue you know no one can understand the tortures that torture my torturous soul (laughs) (laughs) the weird war tales cover is awesome because it's gil kane riffing on himself it's the Creature Commandos and GI Robot coming at you like giant size X Men number yep. one, and that is really cool. I like that yeah. for such an obscure freaking title. The all new, all different Creature Commandos. Yeah, I like that. I like this Superboy cover, New Adventures of Superboy, a Rich Buckler cover where he's getting attacked by eyeballs. That's pretty cool. That World's Finest cover, which isn't spectacular by itself. Um, even though it's a Rich Buckler cover, I think it's a little too far away to really get in on what makes Rich Buckler awesome. Um, that is the start of my continuous run of World's Finest. Hmm. So. Who is the interior? Oh, the interior artist is Rich Buckler. I have to see if I have. I'm not sure if I have this issue. But yeah, I'm, I, I'm actually. I, I've decided a while ago that I'm going to go on a mission to collect all, uh, all Superman by Rich Buckler because I'm a huge fan. 
<laughs> My name is Michael Bailey, and I approve this. Um, <laughs> ooh, just took a sneak peek at next month. Are you cheating? Let's see what's up I'm next cheating. month. Ooh, there's a, lot, there's a lot of good stuff in here, folks. Yes, there is, and some good wackiness too. Yes, yes, there is. <laughs> Damn you, Arax, son of thunder. <laughs> Ooh, one of my all-time favorite action comics covers is coming up mm-hmm. next month. So yeah, but we're gonna yes. have to have to wait on that for now. Yeah. But yeah, it's that's nice. I like that. Well, do we want? Do we have time to read a couple of emails? I think we should do two, uh, two or three. Uh, I'll take the first one. This is from Tight Superhero Girl Twenty Three. Uh, the subject line is you. It says, you, what's up? My phone got turned off because I need to pay the bill, but let's do something this weekend. I've been bored as hell lately. The video I shot last week at the DC convention went up. Came out good. Top vid at www.dccomicsworld.tk. Not my kin of music, but nice for the resume. I call you once I get my phone back on. Should be in a few days. Triple X. Tell your girlfriend to stop sending shit to our inbox all the time. <sighs> Report spam. <laughs> okay, you go for it. All right, next one up is from our buddy Stan Johnston. How's it going? Yay! He says, flying solo. Michael, very nice job going it alone for episode 39. I applaud your decision to refrain from covering the All-Star Squadron until Scott, misspelled, is back in the saddle. It just wouldn't be the same to plop another ass in the seat for that series. I agree heartily. A guest host talking about related material would be fine, however. Yeah, says you. One thing I'll say for your commentary on Flash 123 is that you made me get my Flash archives off the shelf and read the story again, as well as most of the rest of them in the third volume. Who could have known at the time what an impact the concepts introduced in Flash of Two Worlds would have on the DC Universe? It's very interesting to see the seeds planted. Carmine Infantino did some of his best work during the 60s, and while I share your opinion of his later output, he was a very dynamic storyteller at this point in his career. Looking forward to the next one, and that's from Stan. He's right, because Flash 123, Flash of Two Worlds, is kind of a throwaway concept. It's like, let's just have these two team up, because some people may remember them. And then they took that and ran with it. So You ruined my joke. What? I was going to say report spam. <laughs> report spam. Because <laughs> it has to do with the episode you're not on. I'm sorry. <laughs> just teasing. Just teasing, Stan. Um... Next up, we got one from Charlie Niemeyer, host of Superman in the Bronze Age. It says, episode 40, welcome back, guys. <laughs> you asked for us, the listeners, to write in and let you know what we thought of the show. I don't know why you were so worried, Scott. After all this time, I'm just glad you guys were able to do a new episode, let alone return to the weekly schedule. And this was back in November. <laughs> yes. It's great to have you both back and can't wait to listen to more episodes. <laughs> And we got another one from Charlie that says, welcome back, guys. You asked us. <laughs> um, sincerely, Charlie P.S. I like how I like how it works out that Scott returns and Mike appears new episodes of four. I like how it works out that Scott returns and Mike appears new episodes of four podcasts. Always got a one up Scott. eh? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's easy. So 
sorry. Hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Cut that out. Uh, let's see here. We got one from Jose A. Rivera. This is episode 40. Damn glad to have you back. <laughs> oh, you guys are killing me. I feel so badly about this. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, first off, let me tell you how much of a relief it, it was to hear the opening for the show after your long hiatus. It was, uh, it was like easing back into a non-harmful addiction, and I mean that in the best possible way. <laughs> I'm more familiar with the All Star Squadron once the title uh, hits the 30 issue mark, uh, where, without spoiling it, some members go to another Earth. And one of them, well, I said I wouldn't spoil it. But to know we're kind of in the dregs of the early portion of the title isn't as bad as I first thought. While I hate the alien that shows up at the end, didn't you guys get flashbacks to Xanadu from All-Star Comics? <laughs> a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Since so you guys uh, said you missed some of the sillier aspects of the title, and here you are. A crappy alien with a stupid looking, uh, uh, stupid look taking on Golden Age heroes. History loves to repeat herself, doesn't she? <laughs> also, who knew uh, such an in-depth conversation could be uh, said of Plastic Man? Growing up, I remember both cartoons he had, his original cartoon, and when they added Baby Plaz and a bunch of other heroes to a variety cartoon including a dog whose head was always covered by a doghouse. Yes! Me. Yeah, what was his name? Uh, I Oh, God, I don't remember. Did, isn't that the one where Burt Convy was the tiny hero? I, I don't remember. Wasn't the dog's name like Yuck or something like yes, that? Yes, the dog's name was Yuck, yeah. and his superpower was to take off the doghouse and scare the villains with his ugly face. That's right, yeah. Holy shit, what a concept. Uh, but Plastic Man's a strange entity when it comes to tone. A lot of times he's played for laughs. Uh, and in rare instances, like the one-shot issue Offspring, he's played as a decent guy trying to make the best out of a crazy situation. Me, I like Plastic Man's characterization to be somewhere in the middle. I liken him to Booster Gold. Sure, everyone thinks he's a joke, but there's a real guy behind the mask playing the fool. See, I hate that characterization of Booster Gold. I, I can't stand that characterization of him. Although it does work for me with Plastic Man. Uh, um, you know, I, I enjoyed Plastic Man during the... Um, I'm trying to remember who was writing it at the time. Maybe Mark Wade. When uh, Remember there was that story where somehow or other the, the JLAers got split into yes. two? And there was the civilian identities and then the superhero identities? I liked some of the things that were done with Plastic Man in that because he started to like revert to, you know, the Eel O'Brien criminal side of him and stuff. I liked that. That was a good story. Anyway, back to uh, sorry about that, Jose. I didn't mean to interrupt your email here. He says, and to bring it back to the JSA all, slash All Star Squadron, I remember when the Crisis Times Five story happened in Morrison's JLA run. The remnants of the JSA teamed up with the JLA, and uh, Wildcat mentioned that he remembers back in the old days when Father Gilhooly would chase Eel O'Brien, Plastic Man, which had people wondering how uh, just how old Plastic Man really is in this continuity. Yeah, I, I don't know that they ever really tackled that, because... In DC Universe Legacies, which is that 10-issue uh, series that Len Wein wrote that had a rotating artist, depending on what era they were talking about, he is 
dead front and center in the Golden Age issue, the first issue uh, where they had this. It's either the first or second issue where they had this double page spread of all of the non JSA superheroes, mm-hmm. and Plastic Man is front and center. And I kind of like the idea that he was in World War II and then went underground for a little while and then came back when Superman showed up. Yeah. I'll work with that. I like yeah, that. that. That works fine for me. I, I kind of like that idea, too. Why should he age? That right, yeah. Sense. Yeah. So. I mean, I, th- I think they could easily play up, you know, if, if it ever came up, that, you know, the, plas- the whole plastic thing is, you know, keeping him a certain biological age or retarding his aging or some shit, you know. But what, regardless, I, I like that. I like that he's a bridge between both eras. I think that's, that's a, a good concept. Um, he concludes, he says, aside from all that, it's great to have you guys back and talking about the All-Star Squadron. You were sorely missed. Sincerely, Jose A. Rivera. And this, again, was written back in November. Dude, I apologize that uh, things went the way they went, but uh, we are committed to being back, and we are having a blast. And, yes, I agree with you. It is good to be back. So Mm -hmm. thank you very much. The next one is from Randy Matthews. It says, show ideas. Guys, just got to hear the podcast, and I'm glad you are back. It was pretty cool having you read my email. My wife thought it was funny. I like that you were dropping the Huntress, even though I liked her. I think her and the other JSA members that had series or guest appearance should probably be done as a separate show, i.e. Tales of Earth 2. There you could go over all that related to Earth 2, like the Seven Soldiers of Victory, etc., would well, like you guys to tie in where the different ep- episodes tie in what was going on in the DCAA universe in 1941, as well as when the issues were written, I think, as I think this would be a good perspective for those like myself that have Golden Age reprints. It's an interesting concept. That's all, I don't know if I remember to do it every week, though, where uh, kind of, well, you know, Roy tends to make notes of that in the All-Star Companion. Mm-hmm. And in the comic itself, so it kind of does give you perspective. Like, when they were talking about the JSA joining the military, they were very specific in showing where all the characters were. So Roy kind of does the work for us on that. Right. Um, during that episode, I uh, I noticed that Randy lived in Noonan, I think it was, Georgia, and um, that he shopped at Titans, which was my old comic shop. And uh, I was wondering if he knew Chuck uh, Chuck Sheffy, the uh, the former manager there. And it says, by the way, Chuck has known me since 1982. When I met him, he was still working for Diamond Distribution, and the store had been open for about six months. Thanks, Randy Matthews. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I, I like his idea of uh, of a Tales of Earth two sort of thing. Um, if I ever could find the time to do it. I still have this idea in the back of my head of doing sort of a Tales of the JSA Presents sort of show. You know, just everyone, you know, it wouldn't be anything of any regularity. It would just be one-offs from time to time when we could get to it or when I could get to it. That would present, you know, Tales of the Huntress or Tales of, you know... I would love to tackle some of those whatever happened to stories that they used to have in uh, DC Comics Presents that were... I'm pretty sure they were always about, you know, JSA and all-star members. You know, um, I, I think they had, like, Zatara, they had Sargon the Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. 
The, the um, Golden Age Adam. I think they Golden did Age Robot Adam, Man. Robot Man. Our uh, Man. Our Man was definitely one of them. And Sandman and Sandy. Mm-hmm. Which actually tied up the loose ends from the Justice League story. Right. Where they were brought back in. So, yeah, it'd be a cool idea if we could find the time. That's the problem, yeah. That's definitely the problem, is finding the time for that. But whenever a story is uh, is important and, and relevant enough, you know, that it actually ties in with with whatever's going on, or it's a full-out JSA appearance or crossover, what, you know, we'll definitely cover it here. But when it's just a jsa then that stuff is probably going to get relegated to, you know, back burner status. But uh, I, I definitely like this Tales of Earth 2 idea. It's just a matter of <laughs> when it could be gotten around to, you know what I mean? Yep. Well, I, I think that's a good place to stop. Cool. For this episode, we got four more right now. Anyways, four more um emails to go through so start writing again yeah we are back guys we're actually almost caught up and that's kind of weird yeah i'm used to having like 16 billion emails and feeling bad about it so (laughs) so yeah flood that inbox we are back and we will read those emails we love the feedback and again we apologize for the lengthy hiatus but uh it's all over now and now you got to put up with this again so send us in shit to talk about and I would like to thank Dan North of the uh, the um, message board for his reaction when we posted our first new episode. <laughs> it was simply, holy shit. Holy shit, indeed. And then R. Hagen, my offerings to the triumvirate geek gods of Lee, Lucas, and Roddenberry have been accepted <laughs> and my prayers answered. <laughs> but nothing was better than R. Hagen posting that picture of the skeleton looking at a computer and the websites on the screen <laughs> wise asses tom panarese wow you mean my human sacrifice ritual worked sweet <laughs> i hope it wasn't anybody i know uh this issue um this issue has not been reprinted anywhere sadly <sighs> i always hate ending on that because it's such a it is. It's a downer. So yeah. say something positive. Let's 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 have something uplifting. Jerry Ordway is about to take over. Part chores. I'm just gonna say Wonder Bra because that's uplifting. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. 
Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos. We love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. Remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl Harbor and go on to victory.